This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, in actually about 25 minutes, uh, City Council is going to start uh, back with their budget process, and they've got a number of things they want to discuss, including a priority list for new municipal land development task force, but also some kind of evaluation for other projects that are uh, on the table right now and being talked about. And uh, I think there's a legitimate discussion here about prioritizing some of these things. I mean, do we really need to move forward on some of those other projects when we have more pressing needs? Chad Collins is asking that question. He's the counselor for Ward 5, of course. He joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Good morning, Chad. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. And yourself? Good. I, you know what I like about this report is we've talked about some of these things that you'll be discussing today in isolation. And, and on a one-off basis, some of these things sound pretty wonderful. But now you've got price tags and you have to balance these against some of the other projects that you've got. Let's talk about that. Yeah, the, the list that we have today, of course, we developed the Land Development Task Force uh, last year. It's, it's essentially an internal staff working group that uh, is charged with the responsibility of looking at corporate assets, in this case, land holdings owned by the city, and we own over 2,000 properties across the municipality. Their job is to go out and look for opportunities to raise revenues and or um, look for affordable housing opportunities, as was mentioned in the report. And so the list we have in front of us is a comprehensive one. There's an appendix that shows, uh, I think it's a top 10 that we'll be looking at today. And it formalizes uh, through this process, Bill, something that we've been informally doing for a number of years. And so, for instance, when we look at my beach community, um, as you know, we've leveraged assets with our land holdings on the beach. We had a number of vacant uh, residential lots that we owned and uh, took over in the late 90s, where we uh, severed our relationship with the province and the Conservation Authority, uh, we, we received hundreds of properties, some remnant pieces, uh, through that process, and we started to sell those land assets over time. And in terms of le- leveraging those assets, in, in some cases, we've supported affordable housing, and so we've made several donations to Habitat for Humanity for mm-hmm. new affordable housing projects. We have worked with the Beach Rescue Unit, and in fact, yesterday we donated a parcel of land to assist them with their um, expansion plans. And, of course, we've, when, whenever we sell those lots on the beach strip for residential purposes, the proceeds from the sale of those, uh, of those properties are invested into a reserve account, and we've used that reserve account for the Waterfront Trail construction, uh, the Confederation Park Master Plan, which is well underway, as well as Jimmy Lomax Park. And so we've informally worked through that system. I could point to other examples, Councillor Marula as an example, Perch City Motor Hotel, um, the development we have around... Um, uh, city housing projects in Councillor Marula's ward right now. Uh, so those are some examples of past projects where we have informally used city lands as leverage for certain types of development or utilize the proceeds for uh, capital projects that were a priority for uh, the city. So this, the process we have today is more formal. It, we specifically have a, a group of, of staffers who are now looking at the map, looking at all 2,000-plus properties, and trying to find other examples where we could help the budget process. And, and some of those have been great success stories. I mean, the beach the beach strip stuff, I mean, I know it got off to kind of a slow start when you made that um, initial move, but it's that's right. uh, if you look at the development that's occurred there in the last five or six years, it's remarkable, actually, what's happened there. And, mm-hmm. and the city has been benefited. And uh, we found out, of course, yesterday, uh, well, when the mayor was in here, that apparently the City Motor Hotel property that you just talked about, which is owned by the city now, uh, mm-hmm. In all likelihood, Metrolinks is going to buy that back, and uh, so right. the, the city will get some money out of that too. So th- these are all good stories. I like this, but let's let's talk about some of the other contentious issues here. And 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 you're not going to decide all of these things today, but I mean, at some point, council is going to have to wrestle with some of them. 
Uh, the first one, of course, is Jackson Square. Now, for those who may not understand this, uh, the city owns that land, but they don't own the buildings, correct? That's right, and, and the Sheridan is falls into that situation. Yeah, exactly. So, and so the, the dilemma there is that, yeah, while we certainly own the land, we still have many years remaining on both of those leases, both with the Sheridan and with Jackson Square. And so the prospect of selling it and leveraging uh, maximum value is, is limited until we, we get to you know, almost full term of the lease. And so the, some will certainly, some of these opportunities present uh, um, more of a revenue um, opportunity for the city than others. Um, and some of them may actually look, we may be into cost rather than, than, than receiving revenues. And so when you look at the first Ontario Centre, which is former Cops Coliseum, you know, we start to look at that kind of a development. Some kind of a public-private partnership will most certainly involve something on behalf of the city, from the city instead of just the land holdings. And so I think there's some nervousness with some on the list, Bill, that we may be spending a lot of time and energy on some projects that may not yield a lot in the end. Well, and, and let's look at the Coliseum situation for a second, or first Ontario mm-hmm. Centre, I'm sorry. Uh, and and look, you've run this one up the flagpole in the past, and, and nobody seems to want to jump in there because anybody that says, well, the city should just sell this, anybody that in the private sector that buys this is all of a sudden going to start paying property taxes on this, which That's is right. going to add significantly to their cost, and it doesn't make it a very attractive enterprise, does it? No, it doesn't, and it's not as if the building is um, you know fairly new. It, it's, it's decades old, and so it, it needs a lot of uh, repairs. It's not a modern facility compared to others that you'll find across North America or other parts of the world. And so whoever buy it, buys it is almost buying um, a liability more than an asset. And I say that in the greatest of respect for us. It certainly offers the community an opportunity to see special events. Uh, it was built for the NHL um, to, to accommodate an NHL team. That didn't happen. And I think we've made sort of the best of a bad situation since those um, machinations occurred with the NHL and, and the the history and, and the bid process that I think many of us have long since forgotten. So we're there are some on the list, Bill, that I think some of us around the table will have some concern as it relates to, you know, you know, are we actually leveraging something to secure revenues or a development opportunity? And uh, and there are others on the list that, um, you know, obviously have more value than others. And I would see the, the Coliseum one as probably something that, you know, if we're going to spend a lot of time and, and staff energy on, it, it may not you know, have the best. There may not be a, a tremendous opportunity with that one. Well, and you still have some council colleagues, Chad, that are, are still dreaming about or talking yeah. about bringing this up to NHL standards just in case we get a team. I mean, is it maybe time for a reality check here? Well, I think that ship has sailed, and it certainly will fall on, on you know to the city to to determine what are the the medium and long term plans there. Will it continue to act as a um, you know as a special events uh, venue? Uh, we've seen some terrific concerts over the years. It generates, you know, a lot of people traffic for the downtown. And so in, in many years, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people. When you add up all the attendance for hockey games and special concerts, um, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people visit the downtown, stay in our hotels, and spend money at restaurants. Uh, and that's a good thing. But at some point in time, uh, just like the stadium and other big assets that the city owns, we'll be forced to determine whether or not we're doing a complete rebuild whether we're starting all over or whether we continue to put Band-Aids on things. And Band-Aids are, certainly help us through the budget process, but they're not sustainable in the long run. And, and that's the decision that Council will have to come to grips with at some point in time. And, and I, I, what I see in the future is, is something that may be uh, you know, a new convention centre, which we know our old one is, this certainly doesn't meet the standards of, of today. Um, it, it is old and ageing as well and, and needs some work. 
Um, you know, is it a, uh, a an opportunity for um, partnerships with um, you know hotels and, and other opportunities? I'm not certain what that you know what the future holds for it, but those are some of the ideas I know that are being kicked around at City Hall. I I don't think anyone believes. I don't think it's unanimous with this train of thought, but I don't think anyone believes that the NHL is coming anytime soon. I hope not. I I, I mean, I, listen, and I'm a big sports. I'm as big a sports fan as anybody around this town, and mm-hmm. and I I shared that dream too back when this arena was first built. But you know, as you mentioned, the ship has sailed. I think mm-hmm. we need to be more practical about this. And I listen. I agree. I mean, I. I've, you know, I was there for the Garth Brooks show last year and some of the other great yep. sold-out concerts, but Garth Brooks play there every night. And, and, That's right. And, and there's some other concerns about this, too. And, and you know, and I remember talking with uh, the, the ex-manager of Hackfly back in the day, Gabe Macaluso, and he says, you know how much it costs to turn on the lights at this place? Absolutely. <laughs> I said, forget, you know, this is, and, and those are the numbers you have to deal with. It's not just, hey, wouldn't it be neat if. Uh, you've got to deal with the reality of the bills that come in. That's right. There's still an annual subsidy for the operation, and so for as much as we've privatized the facility with Global Spectrum and they're doing a good job, um, we're still subsidizing the operation, and we're still subsidizing the capital improvements with the building. So there's a lot of room for discussion there in terms of what the future holds for the First Ontario Centre. But, you know, back to the other opportunities on the list, there are certainly other land holdings the city has that present more of an opportunity for revenue generation or uh, for affordable housing. And the York... uh, the 191 York Street opportunity that's number nine on today's list, I think, presents uh, some tremendous value for us in terms of finding a private developer who's interested in developing that site for residential and leveraging some affordable housing units at the same time. Now, Wentworth Lodge, uh, the property that Wentworth Lodge is located on in Dundas, is also mm-hmm. on this list. Explain what, what that's all about. Well, we have our, certainly our lodge is, uh, is located on that site, and it's been in operation for a number of years, and there are lands. I believe it's to the south of that building that are excess or could be de- declared surplus to the city's needs. And there's a number of options, and I know Councillor Vanderbeek has been active on the file in terms of, you know, is there an opportunity for additional housing? So the city could, in fact, place those lands on the market for residential housing, and the, the proceeds from the sale of those lands could be invested into a capital project at the city to help us with the budget process, possibly into affordable housing or conversely, it could be used as an affordable housing site. So there, there are some opportunities there to yield some additional assets for the city and to help us either with the budget process or with our housing uh, crisis that, we, uh, that we're facing. Now, I, again, I don't know that too many decisions are going to be made about this. I understand that the Stony Creek Arena thing is going to be discussed again today, too, and that's, mm-hmm. that's a discussion we had many months ago, of course, and that was being bo- proposed uh, about buying the, the Gateway Ice Center in Stony Creek, uh, which is now mm-hmm. privately owned. Uh, and using that because you've got a couple of other arenas there that are pretty run down, as it turns out. Uh, do you have numbers on that yet, Chad? Or are you ready to move on that? We don't have numbers yet, Bill. And I think there's still a, a, there needs to be some public uh, discussion with some of the hockey organizations as to whether or not they're ready to move. Uh, I've heard informally from some in the community that uh, they're not interested in leaving some of the facilities. Some of those groups would prefer that the city in, make uh, investments into those arenas rather than move them to another part of uh, the uh, Stony Creek area. So there's still still some discussions to be had with some of the stakeholders, most importantly with the with the hockey associations. But again, you know, the, some of those buildings are on life support right now. They're not in uh, the capital budget, the 10-year plan. And so if we're, we are to make accommodation, they most likely bump out other capital projects that are already uh, on the horizon. 
in the discussions you've had with us over the last number of months, you've you've tried to make affordable housing a priority right now. Do you do you get the sense that your council colleagues are on side and and that is at the top of the list? I do. It's part of the strategic plan, and uh, we've made several um, improvements over the last number of years with the budget process that's going to assist uh, especially city housing Hamilton. Uh, Most recently, my colleagues late last year passed a motion that uh, deemed all of our city housing units um, um, as municipal buildings. And so essentially, we don't pay provincial tax, and that uh, freed up about $800,000 a year for us. And, And of course... Uh, council continues to to investigate ways and means through the budget process to support us from a capital perspective. We have a report coming in April that will look at uh, investing $50 million into housing and poverty. And I'm optimistic that council we will see fit to support us in some shape or form. But at the end of the day, we, we haven't made inroads bill with the wait list. It's still 6,000 strong. That's seniors, individuals, uh, families. And that list continues to get longer as we see rising uh, real estate prices in the city, uh, more people feel the crunch uh, as it relates to not being able to afford to purchase their own home. Most people can't afford the rising rents that we see in the city. And so that's creating uh, some displacement. So as for as much as some people in the community are benefiting from that, and I've heard from a lot of my constituents, they've, you know, they feel like they've won the lottery when they start looking at some of the, the, the sales that are occurring in neighborhoods around them and, and some of the homes on their street that are selling for you know, 100000 150000 more than they were just two or three years ago. So that that's a good thing. Uh, but there, there are people in this community who are feeling the crunch as a result of those rising real estate prices. And, and the affordable housing uh, list and the number of people that are on it, I think, is an indicator of that. But the reality here is that the city simply can't afford to build the units that are needed to try to get that list down. You need private sector partners. It, it was pretty grim to find anybody that was interested in doing this a few years ago. What's the status mm-hmm. now? Well, there's, there's a lot of interest from the private sector, certainly for partnerships. And the fact that we're offering properties like 191 York, like the development that Councillor Marula is looking at in the Reed Avenue area, and there are a number of other councillors that have offered uh, sites in their ward, um, there's a lot of interest from the private sector about leveraging land. Because land is so expensive, When if the city makes land available to uh, developers, they're willing to pay for it, not just for the land, but they're also willing to, in some cases, offer units for affordable housing. And so that that's a good thing. And we've certainly seen a lot more support um, from the federal and provincial governments over the last couple of years, which again helps assist in leveraging private sector investment. So you're right, we can't do it on our own. You know, we're talking probably hundreds of millions, if not, you know, over a billion dollars worth of new units, if you start to add up the cost of providing all of those people on the wait list with the appropriate housing. Um, but you know, we're, we're making progress, and the fact that it's a corporate priority for council, um, I, I think, is great as it relates to where we're going uh, through the budget process over the next couple of years and some of the policy changes that we're making in our planning department in terms of waiving of fees and being more flexible with housing applications. The other thing, too, is it's going to take some discipline from, from council here, too, because of the crunch. I mean, the last time I looked, there were no money trees out in the back 40 there at City Hall. Uh, but this talk about an extra tower on the City Hall property and some of these other things vis-a-vis arenas that you just talked about, mm-hmm. Council's probably just going to have to make a decision here and say, great idea, but just we, we just can't afford it right now. Sorry. Right, and, and I think that speaks to today's back to today's report, Bill. It, it means leveraging our assets. And so while we don't have the money in the bank, we certainly are rich in terms of land resources. And it means looking at all of our, our land holdings across the municipality to find out which ones we can use to leverage either revenues, and so when surprises like the Claremont Access 
a situation comes up, we have to dip into reserves. It, wouldn't it be great if we had, um, you know, lands that we could sell in order to pay for those so we're not draining our reserves and or uh, creating um, opportunities for new affordable housing by making some of those properties available to developers or uh, other social housing providers like Indwell, who've done a tremendous job over the last number of years in creating new units in, in the city of Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Earlier on CHML News, you heard uh, that there's a meeting in Burlington tonight, a public meeting, uh, to do with the potential school closures. This is in the high school level now for Halton Region. And uh, there are a lot of concerned neighbors that are pretty upset about what's going on. Uh, with the potential closure of Burlington Central High School. Uh, joining us to talk about this are a couple of members of the committee. I want to get uh, Lynn Crosby in, first of all, to uh, ask us uh, or to talk to us about exactly what some of the concerns are. Good morning, Lynn. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm fabulous. I appreciate you joining us here on the program today. Maybe maybe you could just uh, outline briefly about uh, where you are in the process and, and what some of the concerns are with some of the, the parents and, the, and let's, let's face it, I think some of the residents in this area too. Well, yes, so the uh, Houghton District School Board director made his initial recommendation to close Burlington Central High School and Lester B. Pearson High School in June of 2018 is when they would close. And at the moment, we're in the process that they do to sort of study alternate options and decide whether that, in fact, will also be the final recommendation. Um, Yes, so our central community is very upset at the thought of central closing, and we think it would be absolutely the wrong decision. Uh, we'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. Also with us is, is uh, Dania Thurman, who is involved in the uh, the committee work that's going on as well. Dania, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Good. I just lost the other. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Central School. This is a, a school that's located, obviously, in the in the central part of, of Burlington. This is, 100, this is like an iconic building and an iconic institution in Burlington, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, uh, six more years will be the uh, 100th birthday of Central. Uh, and Lester B. Pearson, of course, That's the, this is the alma mater of Ryan Gosling, for heaven's sakes. That should be a historical building, shouldn't it? <laughs> I think so. I believe you're right. <laughs> uh, a little, little humor here to add to the levity. But listen, it, it's ironic. When I saw this story today, Danya, uh, it, it just harkened back to a discussion and a debate that we're having here in Hamilton right now in a very, very similar vein. Uh, and it has to do with a school that's right in the middle of, of the city. Uh, in our case, it's Sir John A. Macdonald, which is right across from the arena here, that uh, this, the board has decided they want to close and essentially say, all you students that have, are going here now, you guys just go to the other schools. And, and we're talking about a significant uh, travel time here and travel distance, aren't we? Yes, yeah, it, it is quite significant. And um, I do find that this has been um, kind of a theme in PARS across especially um, larger urban areas um, where they do target um, the downtown schools. And I think generally this is because it tends to be the lower income area, um, the area where you may have more single parent families, um, more families who are from other countries who may not understand what's going on. And basically when you target those vulnerable sectors, the voice to fight back tends to be a little less. Um, They don't have the means to do that, and so they just go with the flow. So it's easier on the board to target those vulnerable sectors, but it's also very wrong to target them. What's what's the rationalization here? Is it it that the numbers are down? Um, Overall of Burlington, um, yes, the numbers are down. Now, for Central, our numbers are not. 
Um, we aren't the school with the lowest um, uh, um, pupil utilization within the school. Um, there are three others here in Burlington who are close to 50% um, capacity. So why targeting Central then? Again, it's it's downtown. Um, it's probably a more expensive uh, property, which, you know, the board has not said, but you can hazard that guess, right? Yeah, but Burlington has the same set concerns that every other major city does right now. is is revitalizing downtown and bringing people back to those areas and people living in those areas. and And when you look at some of the residential growth that's gone on here, I mean, are they cutting off their nose to spite their face here by saying we don't need a school in the downtown area? Um, I don't think that's the board's um, scope. They're not. No, it's no. Of course, it's not their scope. But I mean, it should be the city scope, wouldn't you think? It, Absolutely, it should be the city scope. Absolutely. And you are correct. When you take the, the um, schools out of the downtown, you do, in the end, end up hurting the downtown. People will move. Um, they do want to be closer to their schools when they have families. Um, it makes it easier for extracurriculars. It makes it easier for um, sibling care. Um, right now, we have two schools that are uh, right next door to each other. So we have a JK to 12 campus. So for those um, students who or families who have lower income um, can't afford childcare, if you're in a perfect setup for your older child to go pick up the younger one, take them to school, pick them up again, and saving uh, saving your costs for childcare. Um, so why would you stay? Like you, you're going to move to where you're going to be closer to what you need, right? And and there is, I think we've got uh, Lynn back. We had a technical problem, Lynn. I think we're back. Uh, uh, yep. Here's here's the thing. I understand that you that boards of education because we've gone through this. As I was just mentioning here in Hamilton, and still going on as a matter of fact, and and it's a, a contentious issue. I get that because they still want to service some of the areas of new growth, and, and and that's understandable. But you can't really do it at the expense of inner-city schools, especially with a public board like this. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly right, yes. Sorry if I'm repeating something. I'm, I missed some of the call there. Um, but, yes, we we feel that, you know, absolutely there's lots of growth in the north of end of the city, and they built a big school there for $34 million a few years ago. Um but but our our students are down here too. We have almost 900 students at Central. We're in a growing area, and if the logic is that you put the school up north because there was a big population there, well, you also need to leave Central down here because there's a big population here. Well, let's talk about the alternatives. If they do go ahead with this, uh, and I'll let you both respond to this, both Lynn and Dania, uh, what's, what, what are the ramifications for the families that are affected and for the students that are affected like this? What's, what's plan B? If, if you've got somebody who's in grade 10 or 11 right now at Burlington Central and they close this thing down, where are they supposed to get their education and, and how do they get there? Well, according to the recommendation, um, the students at Central would be split down the middle if you live on the west side of Brant Street, you'd be bused to Aldershot, which is at the very west end of the city. If you live on the east side of Brant, you'd be bused to Nelson. Um, we don't know what would happen to the 260 grade 7, 8 students that are at the school because the school board is not including the elementary students right now. We've asked multiple times about that, and we're told they'll figure that out later, and they'll probably have to do a whole other par, elementary PAR process next year for them. Uh, we also don't know what will happen to the 120 
English as a second language students who are at Central uh, because they forgot to mention that in the recommendations. So I'm not sure if they would be split up to Aldershot and Nelson or not. Uh, but right now, all our kids walk to school, and we'd be busing 600 kids out. How comfortable are both of you with this process, the way it's gone on? I think I already know the answer, but the, the, I'll put this in context for you. The, the, the Hamilton Board, again, uh, just as a comparator, did this a few years ago, and they signaled out uh, two or three different schools and said, oh, these are the ones that are going to get closed. I mentioned Sir John A. McDonald downtown Hamilton is one of them. The other was Hill Park. One of the other ones, anyway, was Hill Park up in the mountain, one of the oldest high schools on Hamilton Mountain. They've since decided, no, you know what, I think we blew it. I, we're probably going to have to keep that one now. Um, is, is, is there any, any consideration here that they may have to reconsider these choices, given some of the numbers? I think so, definitely. Um, I think, A, that um, closing the two schools um, brings us far too close to 100% uh, utilization, which leaves absolutely no room for growth. Um, Central and Pearson, um, there would be an immediate need for about 10 to 12 portables to go up at uh, Aldershot, which right now they can't even accommodate for. So there would be um, excavation needed. Um, they said on Thursday night that portables are about 70000 a year to lease. So you're looking at about a $700,000 expense. Um, you're talking about busing um, 600 students who now can walk. Um, that, of course, does not benefit the mental and physical health or the academic performance of students. It's been long proven that walking and biking to school um, does um, help in those areas. Um, they do have an opportunity to fix their empty pupil place problem without closing two schools, with only closing one school, um, and still maintain schools in every community so you can optimize the most students um, walking and biking. Um, so I think that things definitely have to be reconsidered. They want to leave two big schools in our southeast end where there's really no growth happening and uh, one little school in the west end and nothing in the middle. And uh, it really logically does not make sense in the grand scheme of things. In the future, it'll be very costly because it will create um, a situation where boundaries will constantly have to be uh, looked at because of the changing uh, demographics and the uh, number of students. Um, so when you have that little tiny school having to accommodate um, extra overflow isn't always going to work. So they're always going to have to um, look at borders. The possibility of bringing back a school in that area later on as we look at the growth um, that the uh, municipality is projecting in the core of the city, which is the highest growth in Burlington right now, um, that possibility is definitely there, that they would have to buy back or build something else in the future. Well, and again, that's very instructive because <laughs> I, I, I know I keep referencing the Hamilton situation because, I mean, I've seen this. And I would suggest uh, that the board maybe, you know, pick up the phone and talk to the folks here in Hamilton about what happened because they did the same thing when they closed Scott Park Secondary School right by the stadium years ago because they said it was surplus. We don't need a school there anymore. Now, all of a sudden, over the last couple of years, they've had to said, no, 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 now we do need one there. they got to buy the land, assemble the land, and start building the school again at, at, at great expense. And you figure, you know, you got to start looking a little further down the road here. Uh, exactly. there's, there are lessons to be learned. Let me, let me ask you about the building itself. Uh, 
is 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 the school is is it in good shape? It's not falling apart for sure. I mean, the you know, it's got good bones, as they say in the architectural business. But does it have the facilities for for education? Or is 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 that part of the rationale for the board saying, well, this one's seen its better days. We have to get rid of it. Uh, no, it's it's definitely not. It's 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 hard to say exactly what the numbers are because they seem to massively change numbers overnight. Um, so. And at the moment, they are saying they don't have the facility renewal costs at all. They did release them at the beginning. Then they changed them by, in some cases, almost 400% overnight. We pointed that out. Then they've taken all the numbers away and said they're working on trying to get us a third set of numbers. Um, we do know, though, that we have have got very little money spent on the school in the last 10 years. Um, and it could be that, I guess you could look at this two ways. You could either say it's in good shape and we didn't need too much spent on it, or you could look at it, did you purposely not spend money on the school so that uh, it now needs more upgrades now? But in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it doesn't need uh, a crazy amount of work done to it, and uh, it certainly should be doable, especially when you when you close a school, part of the rationale there is that they, you are then given money by the ministry to upgrade the existing schools. There's a, another factor to this. You touched on it just a couple of seconds ago, too, and and that's, uh, I think, the, the, the push we have right now for, for being healthier, et cetera, and smarter. And uh, I know that your mayor, Mayor Goldwing, uh, is, is a big fan of, of cycling and walkability as opposed to busing people from point A to point B. Transit's important. But, mm-hmm. but walkability is important for a whole lot of reasons as well. Uh, and I understand this is a board decision, not a city council decision, but, but have you heard? I know your, your area councilor is, uh, is Mary Ann Mead Ward. Uh, what are you hearing from council on this decision? Uh, well, Mary Ann Mead Ward is, is our councilor, and she's also our Burlington Central High School, one of our two PAR representatives, because she also has a student at the school, uh, so a parent of a student was allowed to be a, a par rep, so she's certainly Marianne is fully in full agreement with that. That this is supposed to be a walkable city. This is what we want to promote. Uh, we're in the middle of urban growth centers and all that. So from her, we're we're certainly being heard loud and clear. I would say we're not being heard at all by the mayor. We've written to him. We've asked him to speak a little bit at least to make a point that he would have a very big concern with losing the core downtown school. And really his response is just a whole lot of silence and saying that he doesn't want to get involved. Uh, they were allowed to put a municipal representative on the par. We were hoping he would have put himself on. He didn't. He chose the city manager, uh, James Ridge. And uh, I'm not sure really what the purpose of, of having that person is because I don't think James has really either chosen to or been given an opportunity to say much of anything. So you'd like a little more support from city council? We sure would. Um, I could just tell you, by way of a programming note, by the way, that Mayor Goldwyn is going to be on a show later on this week uh, for his mayor's town hall. So you may want to uh, be listening, or you may want to ask a, a question to the mayor at that time to see where he stands on this. We'll oh, certainly afford good. you that opportunity if you'd like to do that. So what's going to happen at the meeting tonight? What's what's the purpose of the meeting? What do you hope to accomplish at this meeting tonight? Well, we would like to uh, update, first of all, um, all the central supporters on the process of the, or the progress, I should say, of the uh, uh, park committee meetings. Um, right now, um, 
how things are looking and things that they can do, um, reaching out to um, um, different um, people involved in this, like the ministry, um, um, the board, the municipality, the mayor, the, the uh, city of Burlington. Um, they really need to hear from um, the people um, as to what, how we feel this is going to affect um, our, our children, our students, and the future of Burlington. Um, so we want to give them the opportunity and the contacts and the information so they can do that and be heard. I think part of the frustration in a process like this is feeling like it's just a done deal. And no matter what you do, no matter how much research or what you say, that they're just not listening. And I, and I think you have to give people that power and that ability to, to speak and share their voice. Do you feel as if it's a done deal? Um, no, I, I don't. I think that, um, I don't think that Central and Pearson makes sense. Um, not, not in the big picture. And I, I, uh, would hope that the trustees, especially who are voted in as representing, you know, the families and the students, um, would want to do what's best for students on a whole. And I don't think that this option does what's best for students. I think that if you look at the whole of Burlington, the number of students that this would negatively impact, um, the uh, number of students that would um, end up being bused as opposed to walking, um, really in the grand scheme of things, I think that, that um, if students are supposed to be the trustees' primary concern, then option 19 or, or closing central, definitely in Pearson, is not the right option. Uh, the meeting is going to be where and what time? Um, we're at the Lions Club um, in Burlington here on Pearl Street, and it is at 7.30 tonight. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The European Union uh, Parliament, that is, has approved their uh, trade deal with Canada. I know it was all signed and everything a long time ago, but it's got to be ratified, and that did happen. But it would take, i got to tell you, it was nip and tuck there for a while. Uh, a lot of protests going on outside the Parliament uh, in France today, and uh, and a lot of people think this is a bad deal for the EU. Uh, some people on this side of the ocean don't really gravitate and warm up to this thing either. Is it a good deal for us? Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Well, got up bright and early today to make sure I was there for the vote. Were and, you good? Uh, yeah, and uh, it uh, it was interesting to see the dynamic here that uh, usually these things are, are ratified and it's kind of, you know, the photo op, and we already had the photo op, but why why the pushback by, by different groups over in the EU right now about this? Yeah, so first, if you don't mind, let me explain where that pushback is coming from. Sure. It's an odd coalition of forces. The people who voted for it, uh, about 60-65% of the people who voted for it, are from what we would call centrist parties, parties that are moving right into the middle here in Canada. That could be somebody like the, the Liberal or the Conservative Party, who tend to not vary too far from the center of the political spectrum. But it's getting a po- opposition from people on both the far right and the far left. That's an unusual coalition. Yeah. The far right, uh, buoyed a bit by Donald Trump's victory in the United States, saying, you know, it's time for us to have Europe first. It should be Europe first. We shouldn't have any of these free trade deals. We should go back to the old system, put up barriers, protect our own, go back to that old system that way. 
The left side, they're opposed to it, not because they're opposed to free trade, but they're worried about a couple of clauses within this agreement we have. It's called CETA. And one of those clauses involves uh, one side or the other bringing a court case. So if, if we in Canada feel that a, a country in the European Union have passed a piece of legislation specifically designed to block us, then we can take them to court. So the concern there is that many Canadian companies are not truly Canadian companies, but Canadian subsidiaries of American companies. Is this just a chance for America to meddle in what is seen as European Union affairs? And why does that scare them? Well, the left is also afraid of Donald Trump. So the right embraces Donald Trump. The left is afraid of Donald Trump. And they're afraid that somehow he's manipulating these American companies to do something via a country they love, called Canada. And so you've got opposition on both sides. It didn't happen. It didn't, it didn't get turned down. The deal has now been ratified. Now, what does that mean? Are we done? No. That's just actually the big first step. We had to have the European Union ratify it. Now we need all the individual member states to ratify it. That's why most likely uh, later this spring, say around April 1st to April 15th, somewhere in there, uh, maybe 90% of the provisions are going to be implemented, but uh, until every nation state ratifies it, we may not get the full CETA agreement in place. And again, I think some areas will do this faster than others. You might remember last fall, the biggest opposition was coming from a region of Belgium called Wallonia, yeah. or Wallonia, depending on how you pronounce it. And I'm not sure Belgium is going to be an easy place, but I think France, Germany, um, uh, will ratify this fairly quickly. Italy will do it fairly quickly. It may be some of the smaller nations that take a while, but from our standpoint, as long as the big ones sign on, we can afford to wait for the smaller ones. But those those political differences and that polarization that you just described, th that's happening in those countries too. Is that going to be a factor? Oh, yes. It, I mean, it is. And so we're at a really interesting time. Uh, our neighbor to the south, the United States, says uh, we don't want Trans-Pacific Partnership. They were negotiating a free trade deal with Europe. They've pulled that off the table. And in many ways, Donald Trump sounds like a protectionist. Uh, I want to put tariffs up. I want to, you know, impose trade sanctions and do things that we used to do back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And that sentiment behind Donald Trump is flowing in Europe. There are pockets of this in Germany. There are pockets of it in France. Obviously, pockets of it even in England. And, and so the question now becomes, does it become a movement the way we saw Trump? Does it grow and become the majority viewpoint? Or does it remain in the minority? And I think this positions us very interestingly. We, Canada, through Justin Trudeau, have embraced free trade, and we're saying to the rest of the world, well, if you don't want to do trade with, uh, with, Europe, uh, with the United States, or if the United States doesn't want to do free trade with you, we're open for business. And that's caught the attention of China, that's caught the attention of Korea, caught the attention of Japan. So, you know, we could very well be considered the big free trading country of the world in the not-too-distant future, assuming free trading remains popular. There is a chunk who says it won't be, but I, I actually believe most... Uh, governments are going to remain positive on free trade because they do see the benefits. In the case of CETA, uh, the big benefit here is that markets get opened on both sides. Canada, uh, what, what do we lose in this deal? Well, some of the protectionism around our agricultural sector. So if you're a dairy farmer, you're a little worried about uh, dairy products like cheeses coming in from Europe without the controls we had before. And I think that's a valid concern. But on the other hand, markets for our beef, for our pork, suddenly open up in Europe in a way they haven't before. And I, I think, really, there's more benefit here from free trading than loss. 
Interesting uh, about the the pushback on that. And uh, Stephen Harper, who is also a big proponent of free trade, of course, and actually started the discussions about this deal many years ago, it seems now. Uh, and, and, and when they announced the, the whole idea, it was one of the first pushbacks was the dairy farmers in Quebec say, whoa, 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 that, that Oka cheese that you see advertised on TV, you know, we may go out of business right now. So it's it's little sectors within these countries that, that seem to give the loudest uh, pushback in, when, when some of these things are announced. And, and rightly so. So I'm, I don't know if it'd be Oka cheese, Bill, as much as there's been a whole movement in Canada of reproducing European cheeses. So you can buy a, a Canadian-made brie. You can buy a Canadian-made Camembert, Canadian-made Swiss, Canadian-made mozzarella. Now, that's always rankled Europe, because Europe has said, well, there's only one place brie can be made, and that's in brie, France. Only one place that Limburger can be made, and that's in Limburger. You can't, you can't really do those things, but that's what we did, and that created an advantage. They came at a price differential, so the Canadian-made versions of these European cheeses were cheaper because we had duties on these European cheeses. Now, not only are we going to give them access to the market, but we're going to give them duty-free access to the market. We're going to remove those barriers, and the Canadian versions of these cheeses rightly are concerned. They suddenly aren't going to have the price differential. That doesn't mean they don't have other differentials and other things that they can trumpet. I'm sure there are people here in Canada that would prefer a Canadian-made fill-in-the-blank, a Canadian-made Gouda, a Canadian-made Edom. Um, uh, so I think you have to now promote it differently than simply buy an equivalent to a European cheese at a lower price. But from a, let's look at this from an economic standpoint then, because it seems as if, as you just mentioned, this is deja vu all over again. We're going back to the debate that we had back in the 1960s about whether or not free trade is profitable and whether or not free trade is, is going to create a healthier economy. And it seems as if, what certainly, that the impression we're getting from the Trump administration and from some of the folks over in Europe is that, uh, no, it doesn't work and, and that we're better off building walls. Yeah, and that's, that's not unique to them. I know there are chunks here in Canada that say, uh, on a topic like NAFTA, for instance, yeah, let's rip it up. It hasn't helped us at all. Jerry Diaz, for instance, has complained about NAFTA because he's seen the rise of car production in Mexico. Um, and I, I, I do understand that there are always some losers, some pockets of losers in these agreements, but the question is, overall, are we better off? Every study of, for instance, the North American Free Trade Agreement says that Canada has been a big winner in all this. Yes, Mexico has won as well, and probably Mexico's had the biggest gains, but that's mostly because Mexico was a part of two other free trade consortiums. So by being the gateway, a bridge, if you will, between these three different free trading agreements, this is how Mexico maximized, maximized the benefit from free trade. Oddly, again, if the United States suddenly becomes protectionist, but... Our deal with the United States still stands around NAFTA. We could benefit in the same way. In other words, European goods could flow through Canada to the United States in a way that they can't directly, and that can create jobs just handling the goods and helping them flow through. This is what we saw in Mexico as well. And I do think in the in the fuller uh, period of time, this is the future of the world, free trade. I do know that it's going to cause some sectors who were protected into existence to disappear. We used to have, Bill, a a big cotton industry here. We don't grow cotton in Canada. You actually had to import the cotton, then mill it here, then turn it into sheets and pillowcases and, and towels. That industry has disappeared in free trade, but it was an artificially created industry in the first place. It really makes more sense to make the sheets and pillowcases where you grow the cotton, which could be in Egypt or in, in southern United States. And, and that's really what you want. You don't want to have artificial industries propped up by these trade agreements. You want to have free trade 
allow the products that we have a natural advantage in into those markets, and then vice versa, where they have a natural advantage, use those. That's really the best strategy for the world, and that's, I think, what we're still going to move toward, even if Donald Trump moves in the opposite direction. Is, is the protectionism that Donald Trump seems to be advocating right now, uh, is, is that a benefit to, to Canada? I mean, is there an unintended consequence where, as you say, other countries, not just in Europe, but other places are going to say, you, know, you guys are looking pretty good right now. They, they all want to, I guess, uh, to tap into this North American market, don't they? Yes. Yeah, so if you can remember, uh, we were visited by President Obama in the fall, and during a speech to Parliament, he said, you know, the world needs a little more Canada. And I think that couldn't be more true than what we are right now. Uh, today at the European Union Parliament, not only did they vote on CETA, but, Bill, there was a second vote they had on other things that weren't trade-related, but in terms of harmonizing regulations with Canada, cooperating with Canada on safety, all kinds of different things. And that passed with a much bigger majority of votes. Uh, and again, oddly enough, within the European Union, you'd often see these signs, yes to Canada, no to CETA. Even when they were voting against the free trade, they were trying to say, but we still love you, Canada. We are uniquely positioned now, especially under the Trump era, to be this breath of fresh air from North America. I think people want to work with us, whether it's trade specifically or on other issues, because they see us now as the reasonable one, as the one who's got the best thinking the far-reaching thinking, the most humanitarian thinking. And I, I think in these next uh, four years of the Trump administration, this will be a unique time for Canada on the world stage. I even think it's likely Canada's going to get a seat on the U.N. Security Council because we are seen now not as a, an absolute ally locked to the United States, but as this free-thinking, fresh-thinking, more approachable country on the world stage. Th th right now, we are brilliantly positioned, uh, at least for the next four years. As you mentioned, in any trade agreement, there are supposed to be winners and losers. That's what the whole purpose of the negotiation is. Uh, and when those people that feel as if they're going to be on the losing end of this, I mean, even here locally, uh, in this country, I should say, uh, in past, uh, Marvin, governments have tried to say, well, look, we can assuage your concerns right now, subsidies. Now, you know, we, the wheat board, and you mentioned dairy farmers and things of this nature. Uh, there seems to be a reticence to do that anymore. Are they going to have to go back to that to try to, to uh, address some of these concerns? Yes, I'm sure they will. So it won't be so much the subsidies per se, as you've, as you've used the term, but it'll be more uh, grants and initiatives to help farmers. I can imagine, for instance, uh, grants to the Ontario Milk Marketing Board to help better promote Canadian-made products or Ontario-made products, dairy products. I can imagine um, grants to the egg marketing people or the, to the chicken producers to help help them better promote their made-in-Canada strategies to counterback this. So it's not giving you money, it's not buying up quota, it's not subsidizing your production, but it will be some transitionary money to help you compete in a world where there's now more competition from Europe. Um, and I think, I think that's also okay. Both sides are going to be doing this. Remember that there are parts of Europe also afraid of some Canadian products coming in. So Canadian pork, Canadian beef is two examples. And, and they're going to be doing that to their local industry giving here, you know, make sure you have this sticker on your product to indicate that it was raised in France or raised in Germany or raised in Switzerland. And that will go on for a few years until we sort out sort of the new normal uh, through all of this. But that's, that's part of the deal. And it's actually a rather small cost of the deal to, to make this happen. There are many, many more benefits than these few costs we're going to have to incur. So since this is not the vote, that there are still subsequent votes that need to occur, that right. makes sense then why the Prime Minister would be going over there tomorrow. He still has to sell this thing. In a way. So Tuesday, just two days ago, or yes, 
no, yesterday, I'm sorry, our own parliament ratified the deal. Uh, their parliament ratified it this morning. So uh, he's going over to celebrate this, and it's another milestone. He's going to sign it. Yes, he's going to sell. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's got some uh, bilateral meetings, one-on-one meetings, with some leaders of countries where it's much more important that they ratify it just to make sure everything's going smoothly and, and that there's no opposition there. Uh, it, it will take a while. But because we've signed it and the European Union signed it, that's why 90% of the deal could come into effect as early as April the 1st or April 10th, somewhere between those periods of time. Uh, uh, So I think before this year is out, we're going to see the benefits of European Union free trade. So where do we look next? Let's assume that this is a victory, and and I know there's still some work that needs to be done, but it looks as if things are going to go well. Uh, do you look? Do you look to, to China? Do you, I mean, obviously, there's a, a, a not a, a cozy relationship between the Trump administration and China right now, and that's right. A, that's a market in India. I mean, those are markets that that people are looking at right now and thinking we've got to get inroads there. Right. So I I would actually say the the lowest hanging fruit at this point is Japan. Uh, you may know that Prime Minister Abe was meeting with Trump on the weekend. He was in the United States primarily to try to resuscitate the TPP talks, Trans-Pacific Partnership talks. This was really Japan's big favorite deal, the first free trade deal Japan had ever been involved with. I'm not sure he was very successful on that, and if it really looks like that uh, deal is turning into dust, if I was Justin, I'd be going to Japan absolutely quickly and saying, well, you know, if you can't, if you can't sign a deal with them, we're still interested in talking to you. Japan is the third large economy in the world. Why we're a little reluctant with China is that it's more than just trade in China. We're worried about things like intellectual property laws, patents, copyrights, trademarks, things like that in China. That's a relatively new field in China, and that's one of those little barriers to doing business. But I think we have to begin to explore free trade with China. You've mentioned India. India is likely going to be the second largest economy in the world by the year 2050. So now is the time to lay the framework for that. I think all three of those will become a cornerstone of foreign policy for Justin Trudeau, but probably more in the back half of 2017 going into 2018. The next most likely free trade agreement, I think, will be with Japan. China is just so complex, possibly even India before we get to China because of its complexity. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.